Good stuff. Well, Tommy and I did get to go to a Boise State game last night, and I may have been up a little bit past my bedtime. Uh, but one of our students from Missouri plays for Wyoming, and so we went and got to see him play. Uh, but even more than that, we got to talk to him afterward and pray with him and just see that he is still following Jesus, a young man uh, who is just seeking God's heart. And that was a real gift as pastors to get to see that. And so I'm not sure how much we had to do with it, but man, we got to bear witness to God's goodness in that. So if you think about it, pray for number 29 for Kellen as he is seeking God's direction in his life. Well, grace and peace to you guys. These last few weeks, Tommy and I have been re-exploring and reminding you of our core values, who we are as Mountain Home Church of the Nazarene. You know, our mission statement's pretty simple. Love God, love people. It's on the wall. It's hard to forget, right? Pretty straightforward. But our core values help us flesh those out, right? Help us provide a framework to answer the question, who are we? And what are we supposed to be doing? And what exactly does that look like, right? Because you know, the fastest way to get nowhere is by not knowing where you're headed. So that is why we continue to preach about these core values and why we talk about them in every single little part of the service, why we mention them every chance we get, because we want your imaginations and your lives and your language and your practices and your devotion, all of our church activities to be shaped by those core values. And the other day I was talking to someone who was, they were just talking about a lady in our church who is just really just giving herself away. And she said, quote, man, she's, she just gives her life away. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. That's like a pastor win, right? Because that language is starting to become a part of who we are, what it means to be a part of this church. So that's pretty exciting. So we're going to be doing a bit of a pivot this morning over the next few weeks, actually. But we're remaining in the same stream of thought in many ways. Because we're going to dive into one of Paul's epistles, the very first letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And it's probably the first letter Paul ever wrote. But the believers in Thessalonica form a church much like ours as they are seeking to uh, follow this call to faithful obedience of Jesus in the midst of a pagan empire. And they are trying to figure out what does faithfulness look like? What does it look like to be faithful to Jesus in this world? What does it look like to love each other well and to live into our calling as a body of believers, right? As a body of Christ. What does it look like to endure in hope, not in despair, endure in hope as we wait for the coming of Jesus, especially in the midst of difficulties and hard stuff on all sides and temptations to align with the empire? So big questions, and Paul has some really big answers for us. Now, the thing about 1 Thessalonians, you pick up a book like 1 Thessalonians, and you read through it. It's only five chapters after all. And it's really easy to glean the catchy stuff, you know, like those really bold ethical commands. They're like, yeah, that'll preach and fit on a bumper sticker easily, right? Um, because they, they talk a lot about like unhealthy sexual practices and we all like to jump on those or, um, or those theological juicy bits that talk about holiness and sanctification and Nazarenes are all about that stuff, right? Or those really tantalizing little nuggets in four and five that talk about Jesus coming back. And we're like, oh my goodness. And he gets all excited, right? And it's easy to take those little snippets out and forget the big picture, right? To not look at the whole. And when we don't look at the whole, and when we don't consider the context about uh, to which, you know, uh, in which this book is written, we kind of miss the point. Now, in the political season, this happens all the time. When things are taken out of context, they begin to mean something else. Can I get an amen? I feel like that needs an amen. Okay, so in 2012, I, this is just one example of many uh, that I thought would be the least offensive. Um, in 2012, uh, Mitt Romney was running against President Obama. 
And he was quoted as saying, I don't really worry about the poor. And everyone was like, boo, you're just some rich guy, boo, right? Well, then when you read the entire manuscript or from that interview, he actually had said, I'm not worried about the poor because our country has a really strong safety net and we need to continue to strengthen it. It was actually a comment saying, I don't worry about them because we are acting in these ways, right? So it was a completely taken out of context. And oh my word, it happens to the Democrats too. I just couldn't think of an example this morning that wouldn't make mad. So I didn't use one. But um, it happens all the time. Things get plucked out of context to mean something completely different. And that happens with scripture all the time, right? People pluck things out and they think, girl, you need to get out of that pulpit because Paul said so, right? We take things out of context and it, it malforms scripture and we don't see the big picture. And so it's important for us as we read this book of First Thessalonians to look at the whole picture and to consider the context in which it was written. Now the cool thing about First Thessalonians, there are many cool things, but the one cool thing is that we don't just know about them from the actual letter because Paul meets them back in Acts. And so if you guys want to turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 17, we're actually going to start right there. Paul, missionary Paul, was on his second journey um, to visit churches and to preach the gospel. He was with his buddy Silas. You know Silas, remember? Paul and Silas got sent into jail, thrown in the dungeon, and what did they do? They sang beautiful songs to the Lord, and the chains fell off, and it was amazing, right? And so Paul and Silas are on a mission to preach this gospel. They're traveling and preaching, and they're teaching, and they stop in Thessalonica, and like always, Paul begins his work in the synagogue first to preach to the Jews. He says, hey, guys, this Jesus whom you crucified, he is Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's rescuer for all humankind. And through him, God is and will set this world right. It's good news. And some Jews were persuaded, and a whole bunch of Greeks, which basically means non-Jews, were persuaded. And the text says a bunch of leading women joined the community as well. Now, this positive response to Paul's gospel message did not sit well with the Jewish community at large. In fact, in verse 5, if you want to read with me there, verse 5 it says, But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. Now, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason, who was a believer, and some other believers before the city authorities shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there is another king named Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Now, under the threat of violence, it's very mysterious, like you could make a movie about it. Paul and Silas have to sneak out of Thessalonica under the cover of darkness, and they have to go preach somewhere else. They go to Berea, where their message is well-received, because the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. But the thing is, their brief time there, Paul and Silas' brief time there, and their real shady exit from the city, does not quench the power of the Spirit at work. See, those few Jews and those groups of Gentiles and those leading women, they come together and form a church. A small body of believers committed to the revelation of God and Jesus. They gather to worship and to learn and to encourage one another and to support one another, to challenge one another, to persist in faithfulness, much like what we do here every week. 
But the thing is, that last part, that challenge to persist in faithfulness, was not just some casual suggestion, not some flippant remark to sound spiritual. Oh, make sure you're faithful to Jesus this week, right? No. Just because Paul left the city doesn't mean the Jews had backed off. They were still furious because the Jews feared that this little group of Jesus followers, following a Jewish Jesus and calling him their king, they thought that all of the Jews were going to face a crackdown from Rome, and it happened before. And you see, the thing is, the Jews were nice and comfortable in Thessalonica. They had good jobs, and the, the income was stable. The economy was stable. They were in a good place, and they didn't want these rogue Jesus followers to mess up the good thing they had going. So the Jews were not happy, even though Paul was gone. But it wasn't just the Jews getting their togas in a twist, if you will. It was also the Gentiles. The rest of the city was not too keen on this new group of Jesus followers. Because like many communities in the Roman Empire, Thessalonica's economy revolved around guilds. Now, you know what like a union is? You know, like you join the union and you pay your dues and you're a part of it and you have benefits, but you also have protections and all that stuff. So they had these guilds for the various uh, like skills, like welder. There was not a welder back in the day, I know, but that's the best example I could come up with. Um, so welder guild, okay? And so each guild would worship a specific god that was the patron of their particular vocation. And so if you were at this particular job, you went to that particular temple to worship that particular god, and you would go there and you would kind of bump elbows with all the other welders. So it was like a kind of a meet and greet, but also a place where you could offer your offerings to this patron god to get the benefits, right, for your particular job. So it had very significant economic benefits. But you also would worship the empire, participate in the imperial cult. You would light incense to honor and worship the emperor, the Caesar. And that had very strong political implications. And if you didn't participate in that, you were considered a traitor. That was a dangerous position to be in. It was your civic duty your expression of patriotism, to participate in that cult. And so as we're going to see, this church is wrestling with persisting in faithfulness now in this context and enduring patiently in hope for future redemption. So with all that in mind of this church and the journey they've been on, let's read what Paul has to say to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, of steadfast, or your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our message of the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and, uh, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of people we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of the persecution you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place where your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son in heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now here is Pastor Paul and his ministry team, if you would, 
at his best, affirming these struggling Christians, offering thanks to God for them, for their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope in the face of some really, really difficult circumstances. But Paul isn't just trying to butter them up, because you kind of feel like Paul does that sometimes, like buttering them up and then he's going to drop the hammer on them. But not in this case. He's telling them all these things, but he wants to remind them how it all went down, right? Do you remember how you came to find yourself worshiping and serving this crucified Messiah? And it wasn't some act of the will. It wasn't some mental affirmation because you're so brilliant. It wasn't some masterful apologetics presentation that drew you in. No, it was God. God chose them. Not in some, like, you will follow me or else kind of thing, but rather Paul is highlighting the way that God's grace went before these people. God's prevenient grace, you might have heard of it. And he made a way for them to respond to God. It was not their will, not their mental acumen, not their spiritual wisdom. It was the grace of God alone that went before them. And the Holy Spirit infused that gospel with power, bringing about full conviction Full saving action, full transformation. God did it. They responded. And maybe they needed that reminder that in the midst of their suffering, that God's grace had gone before, that he had made a way for them to come to God as they were suffering and struggling, to be reminded that God has not forgotten you, that God has acted on your behalf, that he is wooing you back to himself long before they had ever awakened to God's goodness and truth. And maybe we could use a reminder of that as well. Because it's true for us too. None of us have come to God because we are oh so clever. Or because we are oh so spiritually aware and insightful. Or because we are so learned and wise with every sticky theological question answered. No. We come to God because God made a way. We come to God because God draws us in. We come to God because God's grace builds a road through the thick forest of our hearts, pinning back vines and digging out those unsightly stumps that we might see right through to the heart of God's love for us. God's grace did it. Now, Paul's lengthy reminder continues as he reminds these weary, persecuted Jesus followers that not only did God make a way for them to come to God to discover this breathtaking beauty of God's love incarnate in Jesus, Paul reminds them of the result. You were changed. Do you remember? Do you remember who you were? And now look at you. You are imitators, not only, uh, not of those people bowing the knee to all, scraping to every idol. You are not to the economic power players in the city. You, beloved, have become imitators of us, your teachers, and imitators of the Lord. And you have become imitators, not with heavy hearts and heavy feet, slow to respond in obedience to God's call, but responding with joy as the Spirit empowers you to do so, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of abuse and of exclusion and economic consequences. And in your faithful, joyful response, you became an example to the believers all over the place. And news of your persistent, joyful faithfulness has spread like a flame licking up dry grass. You know, but the question always becomes when we talk about transformation and conversion is what does that look like? 
Well, he says in verse 9, what did they do? They turned from idols to God, to serve a living God and to wait for a son from heaven. They turn, they serve, they wait. Now, the turn part, the dramatic part, that's what we love, right? A dramatic conversion story. If you've been around Christians for any period of time, you know we love a good conversion story. Uh, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, a classic, right? A classic, thrown to the ground, blinded the whole bit. Um, St. Augustine, uh, he was a raging, promiscuous pagan, and God brought him out of the pit, right? And this summer, I showed you a picture of a guy. I was talking about conversions this summer, too, about Brian Welch. He was a guy, he was part of Corn. He looked like death walking, right? And uh, Jesus found him and saved him to the uttermost. And he's this changed man. And you can look up those stories. It's IamSecond.org. There's amazing stories of these dramatic conversions, and they're awesome. Unless you're me and you were saved at four, and that's not a lot of time to get neck deep in drugs and crime. (laughs) And so I live vicariously through everyone else's dramatic conversion experiences. But, you know, that's what I imagine. For the Thessalonians, this dramatic turning, this rejection of idols, and this refusal to bow the knee to the gods of the guild, the refusal to offer incense to Caesar. And we all like, yeah, you go, Thessalonians, right? We're so excited for them, and it's so great. But the thing about dramatic conversions is they are flashes in the pan. They are bright moments of encountering Jesus and turning to walk a different path. And then comes Monday when you actually have to live it out. The fallout. For the Thessalonians, the consequence of that dramatic turning from idols could have been economic, losing their jobs or participation in the guilds. It could have been political tensions and exclusions for claiming a king other than Caesar. So they have this big, beautiful, dramatic conversion experience followed by the much less glamorous, painful, costly consequences, the not-so-flashy part of turning. You know, we hear similar stories of conversions like this today. When I was uh, in high school, we went and did a mission trip thing in Senegal, and we were working at this church to help build this church building, and there was a lot of Muslims in this particular country, and at the time, I wasn't terribly familiar with Islam. Really, I'm still not terribly familiar with Islam. But anyway, so there was this guy that was sitting in the back of the, of the church during the service, very quiet, and kind of snuck out at the end. And the missionary took me aside and said, that man has a story. His dad is a really powerful imam, which is kind of like the Islamic version of a pastor. And he kind of controlled their whole community. And his son was set, you know, he was going to be the next imam, except oh, God got in the way and sent him this extraordinary dream of the person of Jesus. He fell asleep one night and had this vision of Jesus extending his hand saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me. And he did. He responded to the call of Jesus. And I'm like, woo, that's so exciting, right? And he said, yeah, it's super awesome, except now he's on running for fear of his life. He was kicked out of his family, and now he's facing potential violence and economic isolation because nobody's going to do business with a Jesus follower. And there's abuse all around. And so there's this dramatic conversion story, but it doesn't mean that obedience will come easy. It's still pretty costly, right? You know, but let's be honest. That feels kind of removed from us in our religious freedom bubble. You know, like, what do we really have to turn from in our culture? What in our culture? We don't offer incense to things. Come on now. And, you know, what persecution do we really face? 
You know, when people get upset about the whole like Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays debacle, I have a really hard time taking it very seriously because that's not persecution. Persecution is having to choose between Jesus and your life. Persecution is having to choose between Jesus and relationships with your family. Persecution is having to choose between Jesus and your only source of income. And that's really the case for us sometimes, but not very often. And so being teased and even being belittled and made to feel stupid for what we believe, yeah, that's no fun. And I'm not discounting that, but it's not death or economic destruction either. And so I, for us in our context, I'm not sure that persecution is our greatest threat. I think our greatest threat instead might be blindness in ourselves. Blindness to what the idols in our culture actually are and the ways in which we are actually worshiping them. No, you don't have to bow your knee at the idol of the welder's guild or the pilot's guild or whatever you do to keep your job. No, you don't have to light incense to honor and worship the president. No, but what we do face is much more dangerous because it's hidden beneath layers of cultural practice and we don't even see the idols for what they are as idols calling for our hearts. Now, a couple examples. One idol, and this might ruffle your feathers. That's what I'm here for, right? Our rights. The concept of our rights, what is rightfully ours, either to own or to express, it is so deeply ingrained into us as Americans that we cannot see the ways in which holding fast to our rights might stand in direct conflict with faithful Christian practice, in direct conflict with following Jesus, who was God, who laid down his rights for us. And so asserting one's rights at all costs, that's an American value. But it's not a Christian value. Another idol that we might serve unknowingly is the one of financial security. I hesitated to include this one because I think wise financial practices are really important. I think you should be saving your money. Don't be spending it all. I don't think you should be spending money all willy-nilly. I don't think we should be poor stewards of our money. But it is all too easy to find ourselves relying upon financial security for our sense of well-being and safety. And not only that, it becomes all too easy for us to begin to take full credit for what we have and forget the giftedness of life itself. And when we forget that, we become prideful and we lack compassion and empathy for those who are struggling. And so financial security, it is an American value. But when it's abused and it's relied upon in inappropriate ways, when we rely upon our financial security before we rely on Jesus, making sure that we have everything we need so that we can live in radical generosity, that's not a Christian value. And last, my other example of an idol that we might not even be aware of is that of independence. Now, I will be clear. This is the pot calling the kettle black. I recognize this in myself. But have you ever noticed that in almost every American movie, especially like mysteries or cop movies, uh, there is almost always the main, even like Zootopia. You guys watch Zootopia? And Officer Judy Hopps. Yes, she's adorable. So even in those movies with the cops or whatever, there is always that main character who's like the individual who is totally unique and kind of off the wall in their theory about what really happened and the chief and the other officers they're like I don't want to listen to you you don't know what you're talking about and so that character goes rogue 
They're like, I will find out what happened. And ultimately, they like lose their badge along the way, but they pursue it anyway. And they almost get killed. But in the end, they were right. They are vindicated as this brilliant individual who has sought justice all by their lonesome. Now that I've told you that, you will never unsee that in all of those movies, right? And they, everyone, this main character gets all the praise because they are wildly independent. That fight against the man, save the day, my way, my perspective is all I need. I think you can see where I'm going here. That's an American value, but it's not a Christian value. God's design for humankind, and most specifically for the church, was one of interconnected interdependence. <coughs> Join a life group. Mm, sorry. <laughs> something in my throat. <laughs> Remember the whole we are one body. When one part suffers, the other part suffers. You do this, I do that. We are in this together. Remember that? Or how about the part where it says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. You know what? We can't do that if you don't let other people into your life. This independent, I don't need nobody, I got this figured out attitude and behavior, it's American, but it's not Christian. Now, those are just a few of our cultural idols. I had others on my list, but I'd like to keep my job. So those are the ones I went with today. You know, they might not have physical shrines, and we might not bow down to them, but they are calling for our hearts nonetheless, are they not? And like the Thessalonians, we must turn away. You know, but Paul doesn't just highlight the fact that they turn. You know, it's one thing to turn from something. It's another thing to turn toward something else to reorient your everyday, ordinary life around a new thing altogether, the Lord Jesus. But that's what the Thessalonians do. They turn away from worshiping idols to serve this living and true God, to serve God. Now, our English versions kind of take the edges off this particular part because we say, serve a living God. Oh, it's so great to serve God. But the Greek is slave. He, you would slave yourself. We can't even verb it correctly in English, right? Because we don't like to do that. It's uncomfortable. But the sense of this word is not just like service, as if it's some optional thing, but slave, devoting oneself to God in a specific way. Thank you, Ms. Leda. I appreciate it. Out of love and devotion, not of obligation or to pay a debt, but out of gratitude for God's gracious gift of forgiveness and of freedom. It's this joy-filled service, enslavement to God in contrast to the idol worshipers of the days gone by. So turn and serve. It's those quality active verbs. I like those kind of verbs, verbs that require muscle. So I'm a little annoyed, frankly, with Paul because he continues commending the Thessalonians for turning from their idols, for serving a living and true God, and then what? Wait? wait for a son from heaven, in a way that feels out of place, like this moment of passivity in a sea of activity. You see, I'm not a fan of waiting. I'm a real joy on vacation, let me tell you. Amen. Yeah. Tommy's like, today's a relaxed day. I'm like, we've been relaxing for 12 minutes, and I am done. I am, I'm going for a walk. We have activities, right? And so Besides the difficulty of waiting, like what exactly are we waiting for, right? And what, what were the Thessalonians? But what are we waiting for? Now, later on in this book, to be continued, we will look into this coming of the sun more closely. But for now, I want to tell you this. This is what we are not waiting for. 
We are not waiting for this place to be blown to bits. That's not on the plan, okay? And we are not waiting for an escape hatch, like divine vacuum, you know, like old school, like God sucks all the people up. We're not waiting for that. That's not a thing. Both the Thessalonians and us, we are waiting for a rescue. We are waiting for a rescuer to come back to rescue us from the hurt and the brokenness. We are waiting for God's judgment against that hurt and brokenness. So stay tuned for the good news on that. You don't want to miss it. Chapter four, be there or be square. So, but even with that in mind, this, I'm not waiting for this, but I'm waiting for this. I know I need a rescuer and I'm waiting for that, but it still doesn't make it any easier. I don't like waiting. I'm a fan of doing and moving and acting. And Paul, he doesn't discount that by telling us to turn and serve. But you see, both turning and serving are nothing without the waiting. Because in our waiting lies our acknowledgement that we are not our salvation. We are not the answer. We are not the solution. We cannot bring about our own healing or our own salvation. We cannot, in spite of our most valiant efforts, in spite of our most impassioned serving and selfless devotion to God, we cannot right this ship. We are called to be a part of it to participate in God's kingdom right now in reconciliation and restoration and redemption. We are a part of that right now, but let's be clear. It ain't going to be fixed until Jesus comes back. And so we wait, even as we turn, even as we serve, we wait because we know we need a rescuer. So we turn, we serve, but we also wait in humility and in patience and in faithful endurance. What an awesome passage that gives you like stuff to do. I love, I love a sermon that does that. Turn, serve, wait. Awesome. Check it off my list. But I want us to pause one last time and remember the Thessalonians, they didn't turn and serve and wait faithfully and patiently because they were just really great God-fearing people. This book is not a call for us to mimic them. Oh, if we could just be like the early church in Thessalonica, we would just be so great. No. We must remember that the undergirding of this whole thing to this group of tired and devoted, persecuted Jesus followers, beneath it all flows a silent stream. And it's the stream of the Spirit. Because from the moment of their awakening, the Spirit was at work. The Spirit was the one doing the calling. The Spirit was the one enlivening the words of Paul and his companions. The Spirit was the one unstopping the ears of the listener so that the gospel might be heard. The Spirit was the one infusing their obedience with joy, even in the midst of persecution. The Spirit was the one who reminded them of God's faithfulness and empowered them to persist in obedience, even when it was hard. The Spirit was the one convicting and calling them to turn from their idols and turn to God. And so too we. We do not make a way on our own. We do not come to God on our own. We have not achieved what we have achieved on our own. We did not even say yes to God on our own. It is only by the Spirit. And we need to 
We need not rely on our own power to recognize and turn from those idols. We need not rely on our own strength to serve God faithfully. And we certainly do not need to rely on our own courage and patience as we await a rescuer. Why? Because the Spirit does the heavy lifting. Will we respond to that? Will we trust that the Spirit is at work? Will we say yes, yes, a thousand times yes, as the Spirit enables us to turn as God reveals the idols and to serve God with our whole hearts and to wait for our rescuer? The one who calls us is faithful and he will do it. Lord, that is our prayer, that you would release your spirit in us, that you would send your spirit to empower us to respond to you, to say yes to you, to turn from idols as you reveal them to us, to turn to serve and to give our lives away for you and your kingdom, and Lord, to wait, to endure in hope, to persist in faithfulness as we await our rescuer. Would you, in your goodness, fill us with your spirit, that we might respond to your goodness with our obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beloved, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church, may the spirit fill you with all power, that you might turn from idols to serve a living God as you await the coming of our rescuer. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.